0: Well, good evening. If you turn your Bible to Daniel 6, it is a blessing to be in a singing church. You are a singing people. That is the only proper response to the grace of God. Singing the new song. There's many new songs in our hymnal. They're old songs, but they're new songs. Song of redemption. Our London team and our team from the Middle East are back. Uh, So thank you for praying for them. They are back safely and sound, and I look forward to hearing a report from them on what they saw God do overseas. But thank you for prayers, and we still have teams out, so pray for logistics and for open doors for the gospel. And let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless uh, the preaching of his word. Lord, thank you. for your mercy and grace that we sing about every Sunday. Thank you for Adam and his leadership and our musicians as they lead us in song, a very vital means of grace for your people. It twofold purpose. You are glorified and we are built up in our faith. Thank you, Lord, for that. We pray now as the word is preached that you would give me a word, um, that you would edit my plans that you would prepare the hearts of your people to receive this word, inspired word from Daniel. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It was December the 7th in 2007, and my wife at the time was in a singing group, and she was out touring. It was a Christmas tour. And she had Ava with her, who had just been born. And I I had Ella... Nate and Seth. Well, in 2007, uh, Ella was five and Nate was three and Seth was uh, around a year and a half. And so I had those three and I was writing my dissertation and I had a deadline. That's a bad recipe. And I was stressed and I was on the phone with Heather and I was complaining and I was lamenting And I was making her feel guilty for being on the road. When I got off the phone, my three year old son, Nate, looked at me and said, Evening, morning, and noon, I make my complaints to God, (laughs) and He hears my prayer. And I looked at him, I said, what'd you say? (laughs) I kid you not. He said, evening, morning, and noon, I make my complaints to God and moan, and he hears my prayer. And Ella said, Dad, he just learned that verse at Awana this week. And I learned that afternoon from the mouth of a babe, how to respond in a broken and fallen world in times of crises. And I broke down in tears. And I I confessed to my children that I had not been a good example. So I had to sit at the table and we made our request to the Lord and the peace of God came upon me very strongly after that. Um, I wish I could say that that was my custom. Unfortunately, it's not my custom as it should be. But the psalmist, and the psalmist being David in Psalm 55, by example here tells us how to respond in times of struggle in a broken world. In fact, he says three times a day. Now, that's not to be taken literally. He's essentially saying we should be praying at all times, but three times a day, evening, morning, and noon. And tonight, we look at one, Daniel 6, who had that very custom. In fact, many believe that Daniel took his cue from Psalm 55, verse 17, because the text tells us that he prayed three times a day. Now... As we come to chapter 6, um, this is bringing us to the end of the stories concerning Daniel um, in his faithfulness in the, the Babylonian court. Uh, in fact, uh, Persia has replaced Babylon at this play uh, time as the king uh, or as the, as the power of the, of the world. And, and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar are dead. And Darius is now reigning Darius of the mede Persian Empire, and that brings us to chapter six, where we see David or Daniel 's character and competency shining in the midst of a very broken and dark uh, empire. If you look with me in verse one, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom one hundred and twenty uh, satraps. Now at this point, as I said, uh, Belshazzar and, and Nebuchadnezzar are dead and he is ruling over uh, the Mede-Persian empire. Now some believe that Darius was the vice regent of, of Cyrus, kind of like a, a vice king. But I think Darius uh, was his name among the Medes and Cyrus was his name among the Persians. Many people take that because in verse 28, um, which we will come to later, you could literally translate that, um, that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's really uh, a, not an important point to understand the passage, but um, I think it's, it's something we need to bring out. Well, notice Uh, He had 120 satraps uh, over the kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. And so he's one of the three highest ranking officials outside of Darius himself to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Now, uh, who are these satraps? Uh, They were the kingdom protectors. And that's essentially what the satraps' role was. Uh, They protected the financial interest of the kingdom of Darius. Um, And then there were three high officials over them, um, essentially, to hold the satraps accountable. And and now because of David, or Daniel's character, and because of his competency, uh, and likely because Darius had heard great things about uh, Daniel... Uh, He plans to promote him over everything. You know, promotion comes from the Lord. Uh, He exalts um, one and puts down another. Daniel has not aspired for that. I mean, we see in social media today that even many Christians try to make a name for themselves, building their platforms on social media. That wasn't Daniel. Uh, He was just faithful in the day in and day out, grind of things, and and God has raised him up. God has promoted him. But with that comes spiritual warfare. And so in verses 4 to 9, we see uh, Daniel's enemies. But notice in verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. May that be said of every believer. An excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom... Um, And then notice the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So again, this reminds us, this is faithfulness in Babylon and and we live in Babylon. Babylon. Uh, We live in in a world opposed, and this is an example to us, all right? And so this is the way it should be for all believers out living their lives in Babylon. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Blessed is the one whose life is so faithful that the only way he can be indicted is by making godly conduct a crime. And that's where Daniel is. That may come uh, to America as well. But here's the question. What made these satraps and other high officials hate Daniel so much? Again, we do believe it's spiritual warfare. But... There are hints within the text. First of all, envy. Um, Envy cannot celebrate the blessing of others uh, because you feel you're more deserving than those who are experiencing success that you're not having. Again, envy and jealousy always reflect a functional Messiah, a functional idol in your life. Uh, you 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 believe that what someone else has is so important for your identity and your worth and your significance, and you don't have that, and so you become jealous. Envy is certainly a real issue here. A second reason I believe is racism. Now we use that term uh, perhaps too often these days, but racism is a very real issue and real sin. The reason I say that. Is because in verse 13, uh, later in the passage, it says, They answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. And so they are making comment on on his ethnicity. Uh, But third, religious spite. Um, Jesus will say later, and we'll look at this next week, in fact, in John 3, that people love darkness because their deeds are evil. They hate the light, and the light is apparent in Daniel. Notice with me in verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps, uh, they came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. Now that's flattery. No human king is going to live forever. There's only one king who's going to live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any God or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to... To the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked, therefore King Darius signed the document and injunction. Of course, what they say here to the king is a lie. Um, They say that they that all of this had been approved by the administration. Well, the one that was the highest above all in the administration was Daniel. And he knew nothing about this. And so this is a lie. But their request accomplished a couple of goals. First of all, they flattered the king. Flattery spreads a net. And, and when you flatter someone who finds uh, his or her identity uh, in human approval and human favor, uh, generally they will capitulate to your desires. But as well, uh, they focused on prayer. And I believe... The reason they focus on prayer is they know David's or or Daniel's discipline of prayer. And so they focus on the very thing where they know they're going to get Daniel. Um, Now, at this point, uh, it would be good to consider um, the original audience. Who is reading this book for the first time? Well, it's Exiles. And I want you to note. Up to this point, how gracious the Lord has been in giving them favor, even in a kingdom opposed. Um, And yet, uh, at this point, they have lost favor. Indeed, uh, they're being taught here that God can give favor, but when He doesn't, don't get used to it. Just don't be enslaved to human approval. And that's what's going on. Now, notice. Uh, in verse 10, um, Daniel is going to place his head in a noose in verse 10, so to speak. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Now, what would you do at this point? The most powerful man in the world has signed an injunction that Everyone must bow to him for the next 30 days. What would you do? It's a hard question, isn't it? Because we love our safety. We love our comfort. But notice what he does. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Notice as he had done previously so note he goes to the open window that is open toward Jerusalem and he prays to his god as he had done previously as was his custom some translations read now here's the question does this violate matthew 6 where jesus rebukes those who pray before men well no that it doesn't violate uh, uh, Matthew 6 at all. Uh, John Golden Gay says this, when prayer is fashionable, then it's time to pray in secret. Uh, but when prayer is under pressure, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing man more than God. Well, prayer is certainly not fashionable at this point, and so he prays publicly uh, because um, He recognized, Daniel recognized, this was a matter of faithfulness to the first commandment that says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so it was a test of the first commandment. Are you going to have um, Darius and and safety as your God? Or are you going to worship me? That's always the question we have to ask in in Babylon. John uh, Del Ralph Davis says that Daniel's prayer was an idol-busting activity. And, and for Daniel, the most, tempt, uh, the most tempting idol was not Darius. It was safety. Now, I don't think safety is going to be the first issue that hits us in, in America for the people of God. That may come in time. I think the first issue that we're going to face from an overreaching government is going to hit our pocketbooks. Uh, I, I think that churches uh, if this Equality Act goes through, and, I, and let's pray that it doesn't, uh, it will be illegal to speak out against particular sins. They will call them hate crimes. And it's potentially something that where we could lose our tax uh, benefits as a nonprofit organization. And that's the question we're going to have to ask ourselves. Um, are, are, we, are we going to capitulate to the government or are we going to trust God? And obey. Well, I know what we're going to do at Lakeview, and and we learn here from from Daniel, and, and I think here there's a, there's several lessons to be learned from Daniel's practice of prayer. The light is so bright. I'm, I'm having a hard. If you notice, I'm having a hard time looking at my notes. For some reason, it's brighter in here tonight. Is it? I don't know. It's the springs in the air. Or, can y'all dim those just a little bit? <laughs> Um, The first thing we see here, that Daniel prayed according to God's promises. Now, why do I say that? Because he looked towards Jerusalem. Now, where do we get that from? Well, in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, um, he, he, he says that God's people would look towards Jerusalem in faith as they prayed in their time of need. Now, in Daniel's day, Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple was destroyed. There was no king on the throne. Uh, The Davidic king wasn't on the throne. And so when Daniel looks to Jerusalem, he is praying in faith that in spite of what we are experiencing right now, in spite of our circumstances, in, in spite of the danger, I am looking in faith that there's one who's coming from the line of David who's going to make the sad things come untrue. He's going to fix the broken things. He's going to make things right. That's what Daniel's doing. He is praying the promises of God as he looks to Jerusalem. Secondly, uh, his prayer was characterized by daily consistency. Boy, what an example to us all. Sometimes we feel like we're too busy to pray. We're too busy not to pray. Do you know that God can multiply the fishes and loaves of your time if you will just make it a part of your consistent discipline? Uh, We see this here. Now, he, he prayed three times a day. Now, Scripture does not command us to pray three times a day. Scripture says to pray in all things, pray at all times in all things. But again, that's Psalm 55, verse 17, evening, morning, and noon I make my request to the Lord. And so I believe that Daniel perhaps was being informed by that verse. Uh, this is showing us, don't miss this, the habits of the godly as they persevere in faith in Babylon. This is an example of how the godly persevere in faith in Babylon uh, to persist In faith, with joy, in Babylon, requires communion with God. Uh, A short time ago, I finished a a biography on, on Stonewall Jackson. And it was said of him, to attempt to portray the life of Jackson while leaving out the religious element would be like undertaking to describe Switzerland without making mention of the Alps. Divine love and personal self discipline combined in Jackson to create absolute fearlessness. He could look forward to the next world because he was so constantly aware of its existence. That's a good word, and that was a word I think that would describe Daniel very well. It's been said a train's habit is to be confined to its tracks and therein lies its usefulness. A train's habit is to be confined to its tracks and therein lies the usefulness of the train. And and so think about this. Daniel was a prayer warrior. We see this here. And I made some calculations. Let's say each prayer, so he prayed three times a day. So let's say each prayer was 10 minutes long. Uh, that's probably uh, an underestimate. He's probably not uh, what, uh, that's probably something that 10 minutes was not anything for Daniel. So let's say it was 10 minutes long though. And, and let's say that uh, he prayed three times a day as the text tells us. So he, Daniel prayed for at least 30 minutes a day. And that's still an understatement. Well, he spent, scholars tell us, about 70 years in Babylon. So think about praying 30 minutes a day for 70 years. That calculates to 12,775 hours of prayer in his lifetime at this point. He has spent 12,000 hours of prayer if he has been praying 10 minutes three times a day. 30 minutes a day. Now, when I think about that 12,000 hour hour mark, I think about Malcolm Gladwell who came out with that book uh, on outliers. And he he made the point that those who are really great at their craft have spent at least 10,000 hours in their craft. Now, I don't know um, how that applies per se to spiritual disciplines, but let's just say Daniel has practiced the presence of God in prayer for his entire believing life, f- far exceeding 10,000 hours. So Daniel is a, an example to us. Um, third that we can uh, see here is that Daniel not only petitions and pleas, he offers up thanksgiving. It's quite a remarkable thing that he is offering up thanksgiving to the Lord um, in, 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 a, in a very very difficult time. I mean, his life is on the line. And here's what he says. He gives, I give thanks before his God. That's what it says. He gave thanks before his God. And then fourth, note his posture here. Um, He continued kneeling. He got down on his knees three times a day. Now, this is not the only posture of prayer. And some of you physically would have a hard time Probably not getting on your knees, but getting up off of your knees. Uh, so th- th- this is just one posture uh, of many postures in the Bible. Um, but we do know as believers that one day every person's knee is going to be, um, have a place in the future. Every knee is going to bow. All right. And every tongue is going to confess. And so when we take our knees, when we go to our knees in prayer, we, we're essentially coming in submission to a king. And, and, and yes, it's a throne room of grace, but it's a throne. And so when you, you go to your knees, uh, you're essentially saying metaphorically, I, I'm coming in submission to you. you you're the king and, and this is the throne room. And I'm coming humbly and I'm coming in submission. Now, if you can't physically do that, don't, don't feel guilty of that. But we do see an example here in, in Daniel. And now we see his vindication. Notice in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. O king, are the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. Keep in mind, he's already promoted Daniel over everyone. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. Note the favor. Uh, It's not something that Daniel has manipulated. That favor came from God as Daniel just sought to be God's man in Babylon, there's no manipulation with this man, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So we have two pictures of men juxtaposed. We we see in Daniel the power of a man who's weak, but he's strong in the Lord, and we see in this King Darius the weakness of a man who is strong in the world, but weak in the Lord. I I just think that's a beautiful juxtaposition. Verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king, said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction and ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions." Now, that's horrifying. I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo and seen the lions. Um, they are the, they're the king of the jungle. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And so, now think about this. The Sunday school uh, picture Bibles, when you were young in Sunday school, it always had a picture of a a teenager, Daniel, uh, who was in the lion's den. It was always this young, vibrant, young man but Daniel's 80. So those, those picture Bibles are not helpful uh, as we picture Daniel here. He's about 80 years old. And, and the reason I think this is important is because it reminds our more senior saints, all right, that age is no barrier to spiritual fruitfulness. Age is no barrier to impacting generations, all right? So this man is an example for that. And it also reminds us that one's biggest test may come later in life. Um, Those tests vary. Sometimes it may be a moral test or it may be a medical or or a physical, financial test. It may be a family test. It may be a relational test. But many times our greatest tests come later in life. Daniel, this is the test of tests for Daniel. He's in the lion's den. Um, And just, I want you to think about this as well. Daniel has been here in Babylon and now in the Mede-Persian empire for 70 years. And from the human angle, what does he have to show for it? There's been no widespread revival. His colleagues have turned on him. And the king has listened to their idolatry and followed suit with their, their request. From the human angle, it, it appears that Daniel has not had a very fruitful life. There's not much to show for his faithfulness. And yet a book of the canon is named after him. A book of the Bible is named after this man. What is the lesson here? Don't let, and this is a story to our young people, but maybe primarily to our older people, don't let human measurements of success gauge the significance of your life. You have no clue the fruit that is being born through your faithfulness. You may learn about it in heaven, but you have no clue. It's impossible to assess The fruit of your faithful life. God allows you to see some fruit. He will not allow you to see all of it. You couldn't handle it. Well, that's Daniel here. Well, notice in verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions and he came near to the den where Daniel was and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. I want you to note the irony. Uh, The king fasted, and so did uh, the lions here. And so the angel of the Lord plays the same role really here as the fourth man in in the furnace. Um, Again, I believe that this is a Christophany, a deliverance from the uh, the Christophany. Also, uh, just as the friends got out without even smelling like smoke, Daniel does not even have a scratch on him. Again, as we saw in chapter 3 last week, Uh, This is not communicating to us that if you have enough faith, nothing bad will happen. That's not what this is teaching us. It's teaching us something else, and I'll I'll speak to it in just a second. In fact, it reminds me of Luke 21. Think of this paradox in Luke 21. In verse 18 of Luke 21, um, God's people are promised, not a hair of your head will perish. And yet, in verse 16, just two verses earlier... They will put some of you to death. So, so how does that work? Not a hair of your head will perish, but they will put some of you to death. Um, well, what that teaches us is that God is gonna be present with us and the only things that pe- faithful people can lose in our faithfulness, and in our suffering, are the things that in the end are expendable anyway. All right? And that's important for us to remember. Well, notice in verses 23 to 28 as we close this out. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be put out, taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they their children and their wives. Wow um that is a form of perverted justice from a pagan king keep in mind when kingdoms are pagan when the when the rulers are pagan you will not see real justice even there will be a lack of justice or there will be collateral damage in in true justice there's no collateral damage only the guilty are punished the law of retribution tells us that only the guilty are punished and it's always proportionate to the crime. And there's equity. There's, there's no particular group that uh, can get off because they have more money to pay high uh, or, or expensive lawyers. All right. So proportionality is, is, is key to justice. And there's three parts to, uh, to proportionality or, or uh, the law of retribution. Proportionality uh, only the guilty are punished. And thirdly, equity, equity. Well, there, this is not true retribution uh, when they put the children and the wives to death. And notice it says, before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius spoke to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to Tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So, this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's a great confession there from a pagan king. Um And so, for the fourth time in chapter uh, in six chapters, a Gentile pagan king has confessed yahweh now what 's going on here? Is this a legitimate confession of faith? I do believe Nebuchadnezzar was saved in chapter four i don 't know if King Darius was legitimately saved, but we do see this is pointing us forward to a day as psalm one thirty eight tells us that all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, speaking in the day that Messiah fixes the broken things. Well, let's close this out. Some concluding thoughts here. In Babylon, the cost of following the Lord will sometime lead to persecution. And after Babylon, the, the, the Mede-Persian empire, it will lead to Persecution. Uh, And we should not presume that obedience will necessarily lead to vindication in this life. It does in Daniel, but it doesn't in other parts of the Bible. We saw that in Hebrews 11. Some are delivered and some are sown in two and thrown to the lions and are eaten. We know that from church history, but it does promise us that there will be a vindication. Now, with that said... This blameless, and that's the word that's used for Daniel, this blameless Daniel represents the vindication of all of God's people in the day of resurrection. Um, Interestingly, at the end of every chapter, chapters 1 to 6, you see people who are exalted and raised up are vindicated. So in chapters 1 and 2, we saw Daniel and his three friends. Ananias, Meshach, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter 3, we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, exalted, promoted. In chapter 4, it's Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapters 5 and 6, it's Daniel. At the end of some kind of stress, at the end of some kind of struggle, you see them promoted and vindicated. That's picturing something, that's pointing us to something that is encouraging the people of god who are in exile there's a day of vindication coming but here's the question the scripture says here that god vindicated daniel because of his faithfulness because of his blamelessness um but here's the problem with that um even daniel before the law of god is not blameless fully He was blameless before a pagan king, but he isn't blameless before the bar and the law of God. So how can this man be exalted? How can we be vindicated? Those of us who are more like the Mede Persians than we are Daniel, if we're honest, in this passage. Well, he's pointing us to the one who will come. And and think about the connections here between uh, Daniel and Jesus. Um, So Daniel emerged from the lion's den and Jesus emerged from the grave. Daniel was framed on false charges. Jesus was framed by the jealous religious rulers of the day. Like Daniel Jesus was arrested while in prayer and Pilate like Darius worked for his release but in the end both were turned over to be executed but just as Daniel was sealed in the lion's den so it says that Jesus was was sealed in the tomb but here's the major difference Daniel emerges without a scratch. Jesus was actually crucified. And, and therein lies his superiority. Daniel did not pay an infinite debt for God's people. But the one in whom he points paid an infinite debt by, for those of us who, if we are honest, are more like the envious satraps, than we are Daniel. And when the debt was paid, the verdict was reversed, and he rose from the tomb. And his vindication is our vindication. We may not experience that vindication in Babylon, but that vindication is coming. And that hope, and someone told me this morning, Linda Hall said, one of my favorite words is hope. That hope is what fuels us to be obedient when Babylon presses against us, when Babylon tempts us, when Babylon uh, persecutes us and threatens us. We have a hope of vindication, not because we're so great, but because we have a Messiah in whom Daniel points who has been vindicated for us in our salvation. That's a word to every believer here, but we also know uh, it can be a word for those who've not yet trusted in Jesus. And so Adam has come forward. Um, the reality is that all of these Old Testament stories in some way point us to the, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they point us to the one who will come. And, and, and the whole point of the Bible is to teach us we need a savior. And, and, and you need a savior. For those of you who haven't trusted in Jesus, you need a Savior today. Um, You'll be swept up by Babylon if you're not. And and he can be your Savior. All you have to do is humble yourself. That's all it is. You you humble yourself. I need a Savior. I'm I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I am being swept up by the waves of of Babylon, and I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. I, I want a Savior who in the end will vindicate me. And all you have to do is trust in him, commit to him. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And the Bible says, your sins will be forgiven and you have a future hope, a vindication that was grounded by the resurrection of Jesus. I hope that you will respond to that Savior tonight as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.